Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So, Katie, thank you very much for joining us today. Webinar was on Wednesday. We had lots of questions that we answered on the night, but there were some questions left over that we weren't able to cover. And hopefully we'll the next 20 minutes, half an hour covering those. Is that OK with you? That sounds good to me. So let's start with, um, I think, a very pertinent question, actually. The compelling why. So you spent quite a lot of time talking about scleral lenses, but why would practitioners choose these if they've never fitted them in the past? What's what's the main benefit that would be at the forefront of a clinician's mind? I think the key answer to this is that you're combining fantastic vision with great comfort. So traditionally, we've always thought of soft lenses as giving us great comfort, but knowing that rigid lenses probably give us better vision. And the idea of a scleral lens is that we can combine the two together. So we have the benefits of the tear lens correcting aberrations, but also things like corneal astigmatism. But that scleral landing, landing out on something that isn't particularly sensitive, means that we have that great comfort. So it's combining the best of the two things that we're doing um, more regularly. And a member asked, why wouldn't you go straight to like a hybrid lens if you're dealing with an unstable toric cornea, for example? What would yeah. be the benefit of going straight to a scleral? Or would you always step into it from something else first? It's an interesting one, again. And this will probably seem a little bit strange coming from somebody who works for a manufacturer of hybrid lenses as well. Hybrid lenses seem like they ought to be brilliant. They ought to do exactly what I just said. They ought to... Com- in the soft lens part and the rigid part but actually I think because there's still a corneal element of fitting to that rigid lens they don't provide that great comfort the comfort's better than starting off with a rigid lens but you still often have awareness and combined with the fact that sometimes the handling can be a little bit challenging removal etc I think patient perception is that it ought to be more comfortable and sometimes actually hybrid lenses can be a good stepping stone to scleral lenses but I think to actually offer what you're trying to achieve a scleral lens is probably a better option so to go straight in with the thing that would do the job properly rather than yeah, a half-hearted yeah and be positive and and talk about the benefits and explain why you're not choosing a hybrid because sometimes I think patients have read things on the internet and think that it's going to be great and you're going to have to make a compelling argument yourself as to why you wouldn't choose that but I think rather than setting them up for possibly a little bit of disappointment with the comfort go straight in with the thing that's going to be more comfortable having said that loads of practitioners really love hybrids there are patients out there that love hybrids so it is a realistic option it's just maybe not my preference okay um i think you touched on this during the webinar um what about extended wear are scleral lenses suitable for extended wear I think uh, there are patients in sclerals for extended wear, but they tend to be patients with very complex eyes. So they tend to be patients who need it for uh, protection of the surface post-op or with uh, Sjogren's, for for example, you could possibly be using it as a way of protecting the surface. But I think for your normal patient, it would be daily wear, um, overextended wear. Most of the questions that have come in now are all related really to the fitting process, some of them quite detailed. Mm. But just as a starting point, how much chair time would a clinician typically allow for 
fitting a scleral lens. Is it similar to an RGP or does the structure need to be different? I think the structure needs to be different. I spent the last couple of days just calling around a few people just to see, because obviously speaking from your own experience is one thing, but seeing what other people are doing seemed useful as well. And it seems to be that the majority of people who are, you know, have some experience, not years and years of experience, but some experience, like to set it up that they give themselves about 20 to 30 minutes for their first appointment. Um, and that would be the one where you're checking uh, the slit lamp exam, doing keratometry or topography, uh, just to know what shape you're dealing with, and all the usual um, history and symptoms, et cetera, that you would do in a contact lens fitting. And then the insertion of the first lens or maybe another lens or two to get to that point pre-settling. And what they would then generally do is send the patient away for 45 minutes to an hour or have them sit in the waiting room which obviously at this time is somewhat challenging um, and then they would bring them back really for a relatively short appointment 15 to 20 minutes to do that post settling so it's not a huge amount more chair time than you might use for another contact lens fitting but it's just the structure that's a little bit different because you've got that gap in the middle um, something that a, a practitioner reminded me of is that if the trial lens that you put in isn't the correct prescription if you do a quick over a fraction just simple spheres you can actually lay a soft lens over the top to allow the patient to see in that period of settling because otherwise they have to sit there being blurry and it's not particularly uh, comfortable so yeah you can lay a, a disposable trial over the top to give them some vision top tip top tip this seems like a really basic question but how would you work out the prescription actually we've got the prescription with rgps soft lenses i think most clinicians are quite comfortable with working out what should be in there what about sclerals is it a yeah. very different formula it's a brilliant question and i'm really glad that this came up because it's an odd one because the base curve is not designed to match that corneal shape you can end up with some very strange over refractions because you may have a base curve that is significantly steeper or flatter than the curvature of the cornea so you can find that your high minus patients end up with a low minus uh, scleral lens or, a, or even oddly sometimes a, a low plus scleral lens, which seems particularly bizarre. That's much more um, common in your irregular corneas, but it does happen in those um, patients who are in uh, lenses for a regular eye. If, for example, you took my eye, my Ks are all under seven, but I have a normal eye. And that scleral lens is not going to have a 695 base curve. So I'm going to end up with a significant tear lens behind that lens. So when you do the over-refraction, it's best not in a way to have that pre-set idea of where you're going to end up as you would with an RGP. You're actually better off doing your over-refraction in big steps, so one or two diopters to get yourself in the ballpark and then refine it from there. If your patient's sill is uh, corneal, you are expecting that to be neutralised by the tear lens. So therefore, if you're finding a significant sill, you've got to be questioning whether it was corneal in the first place. But another th thing to think about is actually whether that lens is fitting well, because if it's not fitting well, you might get some flexure. And you can look for flexure using your keratometer, because if you find uh, that your surface is astigmatic, that suggests that that lens is flexing. Another top tip. Indeed. And not to bin your keratometer in terms of with um, scleral lenses, you're not reliant on the Ks in the same way as you are with um, no. with um, no. uh, RGPs. But it's still a really useful tool. I, I am a big advocate of topography. I think topography is absolutely fantastic. But if you don't have it, it shouldn't put you off doing things like this because it isn't essential. 
What about record keeping? How do you record this on the record tops? People again very, you know, have very clear structures for dust permeables and for soft lenses. Uh, is there mm. any kind of different kind of things that you would record? Um, I mentioned in the webinar the Scleral Lens Education Society, which is the, the US-based uh, organization, and they have a grading scales card that you can print off from the website. And it would be useful if you... The, the, the downside of it is it isn't actually numerically um, labelled. It's actually just a series of pictures. But if you were to numerically label that yourself and then keep that as a record, you could then use that. But I think the majority of practitioners out there are recording the fit in terms of an assessment, even if it's approximate, of microns. So microns of clearance centrally. Um, and then things like uh, usual phrases of full limbal clearance and using clock faces or degrees of uh, talking about where they might be touched. So um, I think if you're working with other practitioners, it's useful to get together and have a consensus about how you're going to record that. And also, I think some of it is a little bit down to the, the specifics of fitting that particular lens, because the way you change things will be different lens to lens. And therefore, the way you record it may need to be different as well. In terms of some technical points, if the corneal and limbal clearance was good, but the edge of the, the scleral zone was too tight, so cutting off the, mm. the vessels, how would you adapt the lens? Would you make it flatter or steeper? Or how would you communicate that with the manufacturer? And again, this is where presenting a generic kind of overall view is a little bit challenging because it will depend on lens to lens. But if I give you a few examples, um, some lenses are labelled with just uh, clinically significant steps. So it will be flat one and flat two, so as to make sure that those steps make a difference on eye. Um, others will be changing by angle. So they'll be changing by raising an angle to make it flatter. Um, there is a phenomenon that happens in, in some circumstances where the edge appears a little bit too tight, but it's actually because it's too flat and it's landing on the heel of the shoe almost, back to my shoe analogy. Um, so it's worth bearing that in mind when you're changing. But I think my key thing here for people setting out is really to make friends with the technical team at the lab of your choice, because there are no questions they've not been asked before. Every so often we award a prize to people who ask, manage to ask a question that we've never heard before because it just doesn't happen. <laughs> and whilst you, whilst you might only see a scleral lens patient once a month, they're taking those technical calls day in, day out. So they're there to help you and they want you to be successful. So a shared endeavour to get the lens right for the patient. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not that you're out there on your own in isolation. You're definitely part of a team to get there. So on that theme, how long do the lenses last for? You know, is it something that people might have for two or three years or does it need to be replaced every six months or every year? Yeah, I think um, uh, another of my passions is to try to get people replacing RGPs a little bit more frequently than we might have done in the past. <laughs> that age old habit of having a look down the slit lamp and saying, ah, oh, yeah, they'll do you another year uh, probably should be put into history. Um, I think if we aimed at annual replacement, that would be great because we're going to maintain good surface quality, Oxygen transmission of RGP materials actually does drop a bit over time. So it's a good thing to get into the habit of replacing them frequently. And also just, you know, as another thing, if you replace a lens frequently, then the one that you've just taken out can be stored dry as an emergency backup rather than waiting till it pretty much disintegrates to replace it. Questions about comfort of lenses. Can people use lubricating drops and things like that with them in? And are yeah. they helpful? 
Yeah, they they absolutely can be. I think every uh, practitioner out there is trying to make the best decisions they can about the lenses that they fit to be able to minimise that because we know that patients aren't always great at using them as frequently as they should be. But if we've made all the good material and lens design choices then lubricants actually definitely can be helpful. Anything that's going to reduce any friction between the lid and the lens is going to help with comfort, particularly if that patient has a challenged tear film. And when the patient is putting the lens themselves at home, they need to put some fluid into the lens. Would they use yes. a lubricant or would they use a um, cleaning solution? What would you recommend? Yeah. Normally we start with unpreserved saline. So um, unpreserved saline is getting more and more difficult to find in the UK, um, but there are still... Uh, bottled uh, one bottled version um but you can also use single use unit doses so um you could use special ones for contact lenses but a lot of practitioners recommend that their patients use the ones that are designed for first aid eye washes because sometimes they can do it cheaper one of my colleagues recommends that patients go to screw fix <laughs> gosh <laughs> other screw suppliers available yes exactly indeed um But if the patient is finding that there's a problem with fogging, which was one of the last things we covered in the webinar, or if their eyes are particularly sensitive and dry, they can mix the saline with some lubricants. And if they start off at about 50-50, that's a good starting point. But you can up the lubricants from there. Um, And that can add to comfort, but also reduce that fogging phenomenon as well. A member asked about pachymetry and whether there was any merit in having the pachymetry values and whether that could be used as a rough guide to knowing what kind of tier reservoir there would be. Is that useful? Yeah, I think if you've got pachymetry, actually, you could use that. I think because the majority of people don't have pachymetry available, most of the lens designers have made those trial lenses equal to the thickness of their target tear film. And because checking something of the same size is actually easier to do, it's probably still sensible. But you may have seen from the slides that we showed that the cornea is easier to see than that gap between the the fluid reservoir and the edge of the lens. So if you did have pachymetry, um, you would be able to do that. But don't worry if you don't. I think you touched on this during the presentation. Can you perform an anterior segment OCT over the top of the lens? So while the patient's wearing the lens to see how things are looking. Is that useful? Absolutely. And it is lovely. If you've got it, it's a really fantastic tool. It's a a lovely way to be accurate uh, with your assessment of that tear reservoir, particularly if you've got a really wide image because you can go out starting to get towards the limbus. Um, But again, it's one of those tools that's a nice thing to have. But if you don't have it, you you can still practice scleral fitting without it. And that goes back to the fitting sets that you were talking about during the webinar. So, yeah. so, so someone who wanted to get into this would need to get a fitting set in the first fitting instance. Set. And how many lenses are in there? You know, are we talking like four lenses? Are we talking like 60 different lenses? How would it look to a someone who's never seen a scleral fitting set? In yeah. They average between about 12 and 18 lenses. So they're not huge sets. Um, they are all stored dry so when they come to you they'll be stored dry so you can leave them in there pretty much indefinitely and then when you are going to go and fit them you're going to need to wet that lens well because uh something that bearing in mind i've worked for a gas permeable manufacturer for about 15 years i learned this far too recently which is that all the wetting agents that are locked away in a gas permeable material button are just distributed randomly through the material but when it comes into contact with fluid those wetting agents are drawn to the surface so therefore, the lens becomes more wettable as it is wetted, Wow! if that makes sense. Yeah. 
So when something's stored dry, you really need to give that a good rub and it may not wet in, in your fitting as well as a patient's lens would wet because a patient's lens usually comes out to you wet and they store them wet as well. So so, so if you could soak the lens, RGPs or sclerals for half an hour beforehand or are we talking like overnight, so 24 hours? Yeah, I mean, overnight would be ideal because the biggest increase in wetting happens in the first sort of 24, 48 hours. So that would be absolutely ideal. So if you had a patient booked in, and uh, just for example, the lens that I use probably most frequently, it's always lens four or five that I start with. Sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't just walk around with them sort of tucked in my pocket all the set of day. Um, but lens four or five, if you can soak those, your starting point lenses, no, the day before, because you know that patient's coming in, you'll find that lens will wet much better on eye when you go to put it in. It came up during the webinar about prisms. Can you uh-huh. incorporate prisms into scleral lenses? Well, as promised, I went away and did some research <laughs> and I went back to one of my favourite papers, which is Optical Considerations for Scleral Contact Lenses, a review by Vincent and Fidel. Uh, again, available with your Open Athens, uh, with your college membership. <laughs> um, and it's the BCLA Journal. It was published last year and they have a section in that paper about PRISM, which was really useful to refer back to. Um They talk about the fact that it is, again, as I've mentioned, I think theoretically possible to do it, but they um, talk about a couple of published case studies. And this also covers a point that came up in your questions as well, which was about moulds and casts, because the iPrint Pro is a a lens that's been launched in the US and, and a few practitioners are doing in the UK, which involves a cast, which is then scanned by a a device to then create a 3D image of it and is then manufactured from that 3D image. Wow. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And they can customize those two huge levels of, of sophistication. And the case studies that have been published have been using the iPrint Pro, which can incorporate, they think, up to about five diopters of prism, which is pretty amazing. You're limited by the amount of prism because of the differential thickness between the thin part and the thick part. But, uh, yeah, apparently um, people have had some success with those for patients with uh, BV problems. So, so that's amazing. So it's a really useful tool. Yeah, really. So another incredible. compelling but I think reason. Pretty much on the specialist end of things. Um, in terms of practitioners getting started, what would be your advice about how a practitioner should go from zero experience? Maybe they've watched the webinar, listened to the podcast, and like, yeah, I want to get into this now, but I don't want to jump straight into doing this in practice. How can a clinician build up their their scope of practice and their confidence to do this safely? Um, over the last few years, industry has worked really hard, I think, to make sure that you, people don't feel like they're on their own. So we've run various different ways of, of getting you started. So that could be a training course at, at the lab or it could be a road show. Um, and we, we had really great success with something that we ran, which was called the masterclass, which was basically you as a practitioner get a few of your patients that you think might benefit from these together for a session. And then we come and we train you whilst fitting your patients so there's a benefit for everybody involved um obviously with covid this is all changing and we're all as labs just trying to work out how we can achieve these things but there are lots of online resources available um and and obviously we hope to start these practical sessions up again as soon as it's practical um but i think the first thing to do is actually just talk to a lab and just express some interest and we can actually look at the best way to achieve that with you Talking about COVID and disinfection, so we've got trial lenses. How do you recommend yes. the disinfection of the trial lenses? Um, when Sorry, we the fitting send out set lenses. The fitting set lenses. When we send out our fitting sets, we actually send out a printout of the college guidance on disinfecting specialist lenses. 
Uh, and it's basically going back to that sodium hypochlorite or, or uh, Milton type cleaning regime. And the reason that I send it out is I can never remember it off the top of my head and I actually have to refer to it anyway. But uh, that process involves both a digital clean, which is important, a soaking disinfectant and the sodium hypochlorite. So therefore we can be fairly confident that absolutely everything that we would be wanting to get rid of is removed. And that guidance has been the same for many years. And we know that that is effective against COVID, don't we? It's a very yeah, effective yeah, safe method. Yeah. Yeah. And potentially any other viruses that we've not heard of as yet that may pop up in the future. Absolutely. So yeah, I would definitely refer back to that. In terms of the future, you mentioned 3D printing things. What does the future of scleral lenses look like? Are there rapid changes in order that you mentioned in the US, a lot more practitioners fit them more commonly than mm-hmm. the UK? Is that the direction of travel? I, I do definitely think so. Um, I know that when I was an undergraduate, we really only heard of scleral lenses as something from history. Um, and it's been really nice to go and see some undergraduates and do some practical sessions with them over recent years. Um, it's always entertaining and they're always excited. And uh, the first thing that happens is when we put the lens in and they have fluorescein behind this big lens is they get out their phone for a Snapchat image. <laughs> to, <laughs> to put in. Um, so they're actually really enthused. And, and I think because they do the practical session on each other and they, they see the benefit of the comfort, then it gi- gives them something to take forward into their future career. And I think that the the labs and the lens designers are working so hard to make this easier for you. So there are fitting apps where they show you images and you can manipulate fluorescein patterns on the apps and built-in modules to topographers that will allow you to select your starting lens. So I think that the technology is just moving us in the direction of, well, I guess firstly doing what we're already doing in a way that makes it even more simple and then also bringing in new developments like the iPrint Pro and all the super customizable options that we have. Um, and I think combining topography and and maybe even the future, even full IR barometry for our kind of specialist end of things is also possible. So it's definitely a growth area that isn't a part of the history books. In practice, I I experience more interest from patients in reusable lenses due to environmental reasons, so not wanting yes. to have the same things. What's the kind of environmental impact of a scleral lens? Is it similar to a gas permeable in terms of there's a button of plastic that gets cut and that's the only waste, or yeah, how does it compare? Yeah, the button of plastic, I think, it is, is um, larger, but otherwise the, print, the manufacturing technique is really very much the same. And I think as industry, we're looking at ways to reduce that even further. But waste within rigid lens manufacturing is actually really quite low. So it would be a much more environmentally friendly option compared to daily disposable lenses, um, where there's lots of packaging, lots of foil, lots of lens waste. Minimal packaging, annual replacement is, is definitely an improvement there, I think environmentally friendly option so katie lots of top tips from scleral selfies to using your keratometer (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much for your time in answering all those remaining questions and we look forward to hearing from you again at some point soon i hope thank you Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon.